We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast in which we focus on how Judaism impacts our appreciation of pop culture and how pop culture impacts our understanding of our faith and tradition. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we are talking Oscars. This is our Academy Awards preview. I got my bow tie on, my cummerbund. I am ready to go, Jesse. I'm, uh, I'm going to be sitting on my couch in sweatpants to watch the Oscars. I was not invited to the red carpet. Uh, well, that's too bad. I'm going to be enjoying uh, a Wolf King Puck dinner. Uh, it's going to be a microwave Wolf King Puck dinner, but I'm going to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I have my whole opening number prepared. Tonight, tonight. We will be talking West Side Story. Uh, among other Best Picture nominees. Mike, you want to tell us about uh, the rundown for Best Picture? The first time in a number of years that there are 10 nominees. That's right. The The uh, Academy uh, switched up its format a, a few years back uh, to ostensibly as a way of um, uh, enabling more popular movies to break into the Best Picture category uh, based on um, some uh, challenges in years past where where movies that are you know that that the public loves um, and uh, and 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 should really be in contention for best picture never nevertheless sometimes weren't uh, in consideration in the same weren't given this the consideration that they maybe ought to have uh, been um, Black Panther comes to mind uh, and and uh, the Dark Knight comes to mind. Um, other movies like that. So in order to uh, give way for more uh, popular fare, the Academy expanded the Best Picture category uh, to allow for up to 10 nominees. And this is the first year since they changed that format that there are uh, actually 10 nominees. So we're only going to be focusing on Best Picture in this Oscar preview. Um, Lots of other categories and lots of other things to talk about, um, both, you know, who are the uh, will wins, who are the should wins, and who are the snubs. we talked about uh, a couple of months ago on the pod um, in the Heights. I think in the Heights was a big snub this year, uh, maybe because of West Side Story and, and Spielberg coming in uh, later. Uh, but we can get into that another time. Let's get into the Best Picture nominees now. We can, if uh, we want to talk about any other snubs a little later on, we can. So here are the here are your nominees for Best Picture this this year. Drum roll, please. We have Belfast. Coda, Don't Look Up, Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Now, we are- If I count it correctly, Mike, that is just for us to keep in mind the future of movies, which we talk a lot about. I believe five of those were released on streaming services uh, either simultaneously with their theatrical release or instead of a 
uh, theatrical run where they, I, I think you need a limited theatrical run to be considered for the Academy Awards. But that's also something to keep in mind that I know we talk a lot about. That's right. Five of those went right to streaming services. That's right. Uh, so Coda was released on Apple TV Plus. Uh, Dune was uh, released on HBO Max, as, as was King Richard. Uh, Nightmare Alley was available at least um, pretty soon after its limited theatrical run on, um, I think, both Hulu and HBO Max. Uh, the Power of the Dog is a Netflix movie, and West Side Story uh, just became available on uh, HBO Max, uh, also pretty shortly after its uh, theatrical run as well. Um, so you're absolutely right. This is uh, this is a new era in in many ways for uh, for movies and for the Academy. Um, and let's let's really get into it. So just uh, as a disclaimer, first of all, we're going to talk about everything uh, uh, with spoilers. Um, so if you haven't seen any of the films that we are going to be talking about today, uh, you can pause the pod right now and uh, and, and catch up. Um, we are not going to talk about uh, at least not in depth movies that we've already covered on the pod. So we've we've talked about Dune, uh, and we have talked about um, the uh, uh, Don't Look Up. So and if you've listened gonna... to our Dune uh, pod, then you will like me be amazed that it received so many nominations. <laughs> uh, so I I am not as amazed at that. Um, I, I think that uh, uh, it, it at least should have you know really serious consideration for um, director, cinematography, adapted screenplay. Uh, and so because it is, you know, really kind of like that kind of epic in those categories, it didn't surprise me that it was nominated uh, for uh, for Best Picture as well. Um, but I bet, I, I'm almost certain it's not going to win. Um, and uh, if I were a betting man, I would, I would bet, you know, very, uh, a lot of money on do not winning. Maybe after, you know, uh, Denny V and Venu, uh, completes the series it'll end up being like a lord of the ring situation uh for yeah the but for that to be nominated and spider-man no way home to be robbed <laughs> of a nomination doesn't make sense robbed wow okay uh we, we uh we of course haven't uh, uh had an episode on spider-man no way home um but uh but that's a story for another time um uh, yes. Yeah, so if you listen to our episode on Dune, uh, you'll know that uh, that your rabbis had a had kind of a split opinion about Dune. Uh, we also had kind of a split opinion about Don't Look Up. And we talked about that uh, on our episode. Also, in, in a way, you know, not a great movie, almost certainly won't win Best Picture. But with the cast that it had, um, uh, it was almost impossible for it not to be nominated for best picture. Although it's probably likely to be in the, in the uh, category of, uh, of, of rare films that are both nominated for, uh, Academy Awards and Razzies. So, uh, we'll, you know, uh, those, those, uh, I think are two movies that really benefited from the, uh, pool from being streaming. expanded to 10 best yeah. picture nominees. And also movies that that uh, you know probably benefited from uh, from from streaming as well, uh, bolstering their um, their reach. Um, so we're not going to talk about them, at least not at length. Um, and there are a few films here that neither Jesse or I have seen. Uh, neither of us have seen Belfast. Uh, neither of us have seen Drive My Car. Um, and uh, I believe that's the only one. Those are the only two that neither of us have seen. Correct. Uh, and, and uh, and and uh, just you know, I'm a little bit uh, not as with it as uh, Jesse is. Um, so I personally have not seen 
in addition to those two, I have not seen Coda, King Richard, or Nightmare Alley. So why don't we start there, Jesse? Why don't we talk about those movies that, that uh, you've seen that I haven't? Uh, tell us about Coda, King Richard, and Licorice Pete. Did I say Nightmare Alley? Yes, you've seen Nightmare Alley. I I've seen not. Nightmare Alley, um, but not Licorice Pizza. Sorry. So the the ones that Je the ones that Jesse has seen that I have not seen are Coda, uh, King Richard, and Licorice Pizza. Why don't we start there, Jesse? Tell us about those movies and, and what you thought of them. Sure. I'm going to start with um, Licorice Pizza, uh, which was uh, I thought a, a sleeper favorite um, for the simple fact that um, it's a bit of an artsy film, right? A, a, a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Um, and so I thought it had a lot of potential. I love that it was starring um, Alana Haim, who's, uh, for those of you who are fans, uh, she uh, and her two sisters are part of a music group. Uh, they're uh, Jews, uh, you know, of Israeli descent living in LA. And that's basically their thing as musicians. That was basically their thing in this movie as well. Paul Thomas Anderson has directed a number of their music videos and their uh, concert specials, which I think led to him casting her. Um, the other, which I thought was really interesting, that the other star of the the film um, was uh, it, it was the son of the late um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Cooper Hoffman, uh, and he really looks like a young version of him. Uh, the story, I'm just not sure that there was a plot in the story. Um, it was a really interesting story about growing up and navigating love and friendship in uh, California in the seventies. Uh, but there was no beginning, middle or end to it. No plots. Uh, I thought like the ending was sort of sudden. There was a lot of running in the movie. It was constantly running. I think the act of running was a symbol of um, uh realizing that you love somebody or realizing that you're growing up too fast and you don't want to miss a moment of your childhood. Uh, the running was almost silly at the end. I thought it would be a good date night movie. Certainly not worthy of a best picture. Bradley Cooper has a surprise appearance in it, um, which I guess made it uh, worthwhile. Uh, but so there, was, there was buzz of uh, Bradley Cooper getting a best supporting actor nomination for that role. And many people considered it a snub that he was not nominated. Yeah, I, I actually thought he came out of nowhere. Uh, I didn't know he was going to be in the film, uh, but I thought he was great or as good as anybody else in the film because it wasn't especially um, wonderful. His role was actually, I think, particularly short. Um, King Richard, which I, I saw not in theaters, but I saw when it was streaming on HBO Max, I thought was really powerful. Uh, there was some initial pushback of why is a movie uh, on, you know, the father of the Williams sisters uh, about uh, Richard Williams rather than about Venus and Serena until you look back and understand that Venus and Serena were actually the producers of the film. And they thought that telling a story through their father's lens, which, which is not uh, easy to do since they had a complicated relationship with their father. Um, uh, it was hard. Uh, Will Smith was amazing in this role. Um, it was a story in which he so talked can we, about. Can, we just, can I just pause there for a second? So yeah. uh, I, when it came out and it was available on HBO Max, I, I you know, I, I assumed that it was designed to be Oscar bait, but figured 
from the preview that it wouldn't be nominated uh, because it was like one of those movies that was that looked like it was trying too hard. You know, Will Smith does this for me sometimes where, you know, when he's in a dramatic role, uh, you know, I feel like he's he's trying too hard. I felt like that in uh, in the pursuit of happiness and, you know, the, like sincere Will Smith doesn't quite do it for me. Um, I prefer, you know, jokey Will Smith. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I, I saw the preview for it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be garbage. And in addition to the fact that I, yeah, I knew it was uh, endorsed and produced by the, the Williams sisters, but I still couldn't quite understand why it was that they wanted to tell their story this way, centering it on their father rather than on them. Yeah, and, and I think part of it was because it actually is his story, right? Uh, um, they are the success, uh, but it's, it's a very difficult story about... Um, the demanding nature of parents as coaches, um, right? That they, it is not always positive the way that they work you to the bone uh, in order to make you excellent. It's his story that it was his vision, that it was tennis that was going to get his family out of the projects. Um, and, it, and it very much did, um, right? It was his vision that was going to get them out, out of uh, Compton, uh, I believe it was, and into better neighborhoods. It was his vision that brought his family initially to Florida. Um, uh, John uh, Bernthal, as you know from Walking Dead and from the Punisher series on Netflix, Tony Goldwyn, uh, who played the president in Scandal. Uh, they had uh, great supporting roles in, in the film. Uh, and Will Smith was really, I, I know that you thought that, that you were concerned he'd be sort of over the top, was really rewarded in some of the, the award shows that are leading up to the Oscars, the Golden Globes, which has been criticized before and actually wasn't even televised this year. He did win the Golden Globe for actor and, and a motion wow. picture drama. Wow. He's nominated, uh, and, for, he's nominated for best actor. Yes. Uh, at the and, Oscars. And, and, and the SAG Awards, which is be really being propped up as of late, the Screen Actors Guild, because it's actors and actresses uh, voting on their colleagues uh, has been really propped up as a, a, a main um, preview for the Oscars. He also won male actor in a leading role. And so, well, the movie and the storyline itself, I, I did not think was phenomenal. I, I thought that he uh, was great in, in, in the movie itself. And then finally, I would say, right. Coda. Yeah, let, me, let me just say, let me yes. just say about that. I mean, I, I wonder if that's not, um, uh, you know, one of those circumstances, you know, like Leonardo DiCaprio say that they're, you know, they're, they're like, it's, it's, it, it's time he's due for it. You know, it's not an undeserving role, uh, but, you know, he probably should have won for uh, Ali, you know, whatever it was 10 years ago uh, or, or 15 years ago. Um, and so he's, you know, he's being considered now uh, for that. I would say it seems to me that Best Actor is probably a two-man race between uh, Will Smith and Benedict Cumberpatch. Uh, and I know that uh, you have feelings about, uh, about that performance as well. We'll get to that in a bit. We will, we will talk about that in a bit. So lastly, the, the last film that I saw that you had not seen, which is available on Apple TV, is Coda. Um, by far my favorite to win Best Picture. It was uh, really a feel-good movie. Uh, it was, um, I think, profound in how it, it really centered um, the, the deaf community and, and deaf actors. Marley Matlin, uh, who is an amazing actress, uh, and really has been a supporting actress in different roles throughout her career. The West Wing, Picket Fences, all, all these roles. Um, uh, she uh, soared and starred. Uh, and it was really about the, the challenge 
of being a uh, coda, a child of death adults. Uh, and what does it mean, right, to, to be a child of death adults when your life, especially uh, the child's uh, fatuation with music, uh, is so different than her, her parents and her brother who are hearing impaired. I think especially um, as March is Disabilities Awareness Month to center on, on those uh, with uh, disabilities and how, as Marley Matten said, when the cast won uh, Best Cast Ensemble uh, for CODA in the SAG Awards, uh, that um, it's in, in the same way, I think in the past, we've celebrated uh, people of color, the LGBTQ community winning awards to say that, you know, that the the deaf community and deaf actors are just as capable uh, as being profound in their roles. Um, I think it was really, really uh, telling um, and um, should be celebrated as such. Um, the, the director also just uh, of note, Sienna Hedder, uh, in, in her own right, right? She directed Tallulah, um, which was, you know, a Sundance Festival favorite uh, about five or, or six years ago. Um, and, and she wrote for Orange is the New Black. She worked on Men of a Certain Age, you, you know, so, so she ha has, but this is really her main, I, I think, first uh, directorial film that has been getting so much buzz. Uh, and I would pick Coda as my favorite for best picture. Interesting. Okay. That's Mike, your prediction. That is, is my prediction. Your prediction? That, that is my vote. I don't think it will win, but that is my vote. Um, you saw Nightmare Alley and I did not. Do you want to talk about that? Sure, I did. I, I enjoyed Nightmare Alley, although not as much as I uh, thought I was going to. So Nightmare Alley was... Uh, uh, directed by Guillermo del Toro and uh, stars Bradley Cooper and um, Kate Blanchett uh, and uh, 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 Rooney Mara. Uh, it is uh, set in 1940s New York. A uh, Bradley Cooper plays a down on his luck uh, guy named Stanton Carlisle who has a haunted past um, who uh, joins a circus, uh, initially a circus that is run by uh, Willem Dafoe and uh, learns um, kind of the tricks of the trade of the of the circus, the uh, uh, how to how to make a mark, um, uh, you know how to how to like uh, basically dupe uh, people into uh, into you know spending their money on on uh, ridiculousness, um, and also how to um, exploit uh, exploit people um, uh, who are you know vulnerable, uh, and so he uh, becomes. Uh, he, he develops a trade of being a, a clairvoyant and, and a, a mentalist, um, basically somebody who, who uh, pretends to be able to commune with the dead. Um, and then eventually uh, uh, breaks out of the circuit business and uh, goes to uh, New York uh, to, uh, to swindle, the, to be a mentalist for, for the elite and wealthy and have a more kind of high class show. Um, and uh, he, uh, he meets a uh, psy psychologist uh, played by Kate Blanchett, uh, who uh, uh, in a turn of events ends up, you know, essentially uh, duping him for duping her. Um, but he's hope he hopes to have a big score uh, and uh, con a dangerous uh, tycoon um, out of uh, a significant sum of money by uh, conjuring up uh, his uh, his his 
dead wife. Um, and uh, it, the story, of course, ends in um, in, in tragedy, uh, but with a um, with a twist ending that was sort of um, uh, I don't know projected from uh, from the very beginning, where Bradley Cooper um, essentially ends up becoming uh, what's known as a, a, a geek uh, in uh, in circus life, which is which is basically a a, a, a drunk uh, who is. Um, uh, uh, presented as being a kind of like freak who feeds on the blood of chickens, um, uh, sort of like half man, half beast. Uh, but he uh, essentially like gives himself uh, to that role. Um, so I, I thought, so first of all, you know, I could say like a lot of things Guillermo del Toro does, uh, beautifully shot, beautifully directed. Um, it was compelling, not as thrilling as I thought it was going to be. I thought Bradley Cooper's performance was good. Kate Blanchett is always great. Ernie Mara is good. Um, the story was a little bit slow for, for me, but I'm not surprised that it got nominated uh, for Best Picture. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, Guillermo del Toro uh, was not nominated for Best Director for it. Uh, he, uh, of course, won for the, the Shape of Water a couple of years ago, um, and that was a, a long overdue uh, recognition for, for his work. Um, but, you know, I thought that the, you know, that the, that the movie kind of uh, played on themes uh, that, uh, to me, you know, struck me as, as resonant. Um, so it, it takes place in the shadow of uh, World War II um, and uh, the, uh, the, the way in which, um, you know, the violence that surrounds us um, uh, makes us, um, you know, long to escape into fantasy um, how fantasy is sometimes um, uh, nightmarish um, and how we are willing to um, uh, believe things that we know to be deceptions because we want to believe them. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about that theme before on, on this show too. Uh, but um, uh, uh, it was, um, you know, when the, when the twist ending of Bradley Cooper becoming this geek uh, in, uh, in in circus life at the end, having you know basically uh, um, uh, committed murder and then uh, running away, becoming a drunk, uh, and then being totally down on his luck again, and um, allowing himself basically to be used by the circus and, and saying, you know, it was the part I was born to play. You know, he's he's uh, he's essentially saying, you know, um, that uh, that uh, you know it's the it's the role he deserves um, for uh, for a, a, a life spent um, uh, deceiving people uh, and uh, and um, and and uh, committing violence against them. Um, so now he kind of you know uh, sees it coming full circle to him of, uh, of of being the recipient of violence and on the uh, on the other side of exploitation. Um, you know, so I, I thought that it was uh, powerful in its own way, but I would be extremely surprised if it uh, walks away with the top prize. So why don't we why don't we move on and uh, and and talk about the ones that uh, we have seen together? And these ones are uh, uh, probably among the front runners as well. Uh, we have West Side Story, uh, the um, uh, reboot or adaptation of the uh, 1957 uh, Broadway smash musical uh, uh, West Side Story, which was then uh, uh, a 1961 
classic modern classic um uh uh movie that that was a major oscar winner in its own time i think went away with 10 awards that year uh at the academy awards um so uh you know of the movies to be remade um it, it's it's one of those movies that big shoes no one big shoes to fill probably no one ever thought that it should or would be remade um i guess if anybody can do it it would be spielberg uh and so you know spielberg uh talked a little bit about why he remade west side story um he said first of all because he loved it so much as a kid uh, and then also thought its themes of um of of, of division uh and uh tribalism uh, were as relevant today or more relevant today than they perhaps ever were. Um, whether that's true is somewhat questionable, but uh, but West Side Story is one that we got to talk about. And we got to also talk about the power of the dog. Uh, now, I know uh, that uh, Jesse and I have kind of a split opinion about the power of the dog, but uh, we should get into it because if, if I were a betting man, I would say that's going to walk away with the top prize on Oscar night. So where do you want to start first, Jesse? Uh, let's start West Side Story because I agree with you. I, I think it's a question of um, if this movie needed to be remade and really uh, if it was remade in such a way that makes it that much different than the film 55 years ago that won so many Academy Awards. First and foremost, I think the cinematography was beautiful in this film. Um, I, I think much uh, of the choreography of the dancers was great. Um, Spielberg, I think, uh, is allowed to do whatever he wants to do um, because of, you know, the, the Spielberg of the, the 80s and 90s, because of the Spielberg that, that did the Indiana Jones trilogy and the Spielberg that did E.T., the Spielberg that did Jurassic Park and that, that sort of thing. Um, he, he actually, I'm looking at his filmography right now, uh, has had quite a few flops uh, you know, recently, uh, Ready Player One, which I enjoyed, was not. I also enjoyed Ready Player One, but it was not a huge commercial success. The Post was was a flop. Um, BFG was a flop. At Bridge of Spies was was not great. I mean, it was really since Lincoln, which was a decade ago, what was his last uh, critical uh, and commercial success? Um, the real question is. Did West Side Story need to be remade? And was he really telling a different story than the one from 55 years ago? I'm not sure. Uh, I also, I, I love the music from West Side Story, but I think in this era where the movie musicals that are being made, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the, right, the Lin-Manuel Miranda's, right, the, the, the In the Heights or the Hamiltons, uh, but, but even also not just that, Right. If we think of like the Paul Pascal, uh, uh, the 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 um, uh, right, Dear Evan Hansen's or the Greatest Showman's. Right. Right. The, 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 that these are um, more upbeat music where the, the music uh, in West Side Story is beautiful, but it's slower. It's very, very, yes, very melodramatic uh, in, in West Side Story. What I would say is, yeah, like, like I said at the beginning of the pod, you know, um, I'm a little bit miffed that uh, West Side Story was uh, was considered and In the Heights wasn't, because uh, I thought In the Heights 
uh, even though it, it it had some controversy, which is probably ultimately what um, did it in in the Oscars because it you know it, it sort of left a bad taste in some people's mouths um, about um, not casting uh, uh, darker skinned uh, um, Latinx actors uh, in some of those roles in in the Heights. Um, nevertheless, I think that it was a really really well done uh, uh, movie musical, uh, modern movie movie musical. I do think like I can see a world in which. Uh, Spielberg's version of West Side Story is the definitive version of West Side Story if the 1961 version had never been made. Since the 1961 version is so beloved um, and and is you know so universally considered to be um, a a great uh, musical adaptation, a classic, um, it's it's you know Spielberg had a tall order. Uh, to fill by remaking West Side Story. I think he realizes that. Um, I, and I think that he was doing, this is Spielberg, Spielberg can make whatever movie he wants um, because of what you said. Um, so this is really a passion project for him, right? He said that he loved it as a kid. And he, you know, if he was ever going to make a movie musical, this is the one he's going to make. He doesn't care if anybody sees it, honestly. He doesn't care if he gets nominated for an Oscar, probably. Um, although he is now, I think, the only director to be nominated for Oscars, I think, uh, in in each of, I think it's six decades. Um, So it's pretty amazing. Um, He was uh, nominated in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s. So six decades um, uh, of being nominated for Oscars. That's whatever, however spotty his commercial track record is uh, in recent years. um, I mean, that's an extraordinary accomplishment. so we just need to acknowledge, uh, you know, uh, game recognizing game, as they say, right? Um, uh, from from the Spielberg of the podcast world, uh, Spielbergs of the podcast world, to uh, the Spielberg of the movie world, game recognizing game. There, uh, what I so here's what I would say about it, you know, to to the question that you asked, Jesse. So um, first, I, you know, I I have a somewhat mixed relationship with the uh, with the stage and original production. Uh, my wife. Um, is absolutely in love with the 1961 uh, version and um, is the only reason I ever watched it personally. Um, and I thought it was fine. You know, it was fine in places and some of the music I knew already and recognized. And, and otherwise, I just like, I liked it better when it was Romeo and Juliet. Um, and I saw a stage production of it in uh, in Los Angeles. And, and I also thought that that was fine. Although, you know, as sometimes happens to me when I see live performances, uh, there were there were parts where I uh, fell asleep. Um, but there are definitely some bangs. Wow. In- <laughs> um, there are definitely, you know, you can at me on that. Um, all you uh, West Side Story heads. Um, uh, you know, there, there's some definite bangers in there. You know, um, uh, I love Officer Krupke. Um, that that song is great. Uh, I think that the way Spielberg redid it, I'm not crazy about. I, I like it when it was when it's more riff centric. Um, by the way, some of the performances in Spielberg's West Side Story, I thought were great. And some of them were definite misfires. Um, I thought Tony was uh, a total dud, uh, and I thought uh, I thought Riff was 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 played uh, extraordinarily well. Bernardo was was great. So Riff, anyway, part of the original Broadway cast of Dear Evan Hansen, he was fantastic in that show. Yeah, so that that kid's got. A, I don't know the actor's name, but uh, but he's I think got a got a, a bright future. And what and so you know uh, what I'd say about the original movie is that if you know as a play on um, Romeo and Juliet. 
it, it definitely the 61 version i i feel you know highlighted more the the star-crossed lovers aspect of it and spielberg i think was much more and intentionally so um, about you know two households both alike in dignity you know fair Verona where we lay our seed and from ancient grudge leads to new mutiny where civil blood makes civil hands unclean right so this was really about the the turf war between the sharks and the jets uh, Spielberg I think really kind of lays into the themes of um, of division and tribalism because he thinks that that is um, you know very uh, of the moment right now and he's probably right about it although my wife who's very wise when I I said that to her said to me I don't know you know in 1957 I think that at least some people probably felt uh, that uh, that there was um, as much violent division um, as there is now so maybe in Spielberg's Arguably world more. right right maybe in Spielberg's world as a uh, you know uh, uh, somewhat um, uh, upper middle class uh, Jewish white kid in uh, in, in uh, Southern California um, he didn't feel the divisions in 1957 in the same way others did but they were definitely there um, and uh, and so it's sort of like the a position of privilege to say okay well now we feel divisions because white people are feeling divisions right now but also what's present in Spielberg's take on it um, which I didn't see as much in the 1961 version especially because the 61 version famously did not uh, cast many uh, uh, Hispanic or Latinx actors in Hispanic or Latinx roles um, was, uh, was, was uh, elevating the xenophobia um, of, um, uh, that was exacerbated by class conflict um, of um, uh, you know, mid-century New York, um, the displacement um, of people in general, but also um, of, um, of, of you know, uh, how that exacerbated um, conflict over, over, you know, race and ethnicity. Um, I, I thought Spielberg highlighted that with Tony Kushner uh, writing an adapted screenplay, highlighted that really effectively for me. You know, th this also highlighted, I think you're right about class, that at the very beginning, um, Officer Krupke is, said, you know, uh, why is it that all of you Right. The, the, the Irish, the Jews, right. All other white immigrants were able to pull themselves out of the slums. But it's your parents who never left and you're stuck in the slums. Why wouldn't you wanna, uh, want to wouldn't want to leave? And so it is very much just about class as it is about xenophobia and, and racism between the Jets and the sharks. And again, what I think is really important to note, and the screenplay notes it, is, is that the sharks are, are overall, they're, they're Puerto Rican immigrants, right? So they talk about that they're Americans, right. um, but are they actually Americans and are they actually seen as American, which is also, well, at least it was prior to the 2020 election, uh, a big political debate about Puerto Rico becoming a state and what does it mean to be American but not having equal rights if you don't have a, a, a state of your own. Right. You know, so there, there is very much a uh, kind of Gangs of New York vibe to uh, to especially Spielberg's version of this, uh, which which I thought, by the way, Gangs of New York uh, was was a movie that Scorsese should have won uh, Best Director for uh, in its time as well. Um, but, uh, you know, where where basically it's it's a it's a conflict over, you know, who the real Americans are. Uh, and, you know, are people who were, you know, born in mainland U.S. versus people who uh, uh, immigrated to mainland U.S., even if they're from American territory, um, are, uh, you know, uh, th there's a conflict over who gets to count as a as a real American. But, you know, what's what's kind of like uh, 
um, what that all overlays, I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, is um, that neither of them are really the real Americans um, because all of it is, uh, is you know, is, is sort of like, uh, and Spielberg doesn't explore this theme very much, um, but all of it is sort of overlaid on the displacement of, uh, of Native Americans as well, and then the exploitation of, of, uh, of African-American bodies uh, to, uh, to, to create the country. So that's not present really in, uh, in, in Spielberg's take um, or in West Side Story really at, at all. Um, but, but it is, I think, a, um, a, an idea that we're still, you know, kind of reckoning with and, and grappling with um, that, uh, that, you know, all of our um, you know, all the, the sort of nativism that is present in our time, um, which is really rooted in right, white supremacy, um, uh, is, is, you know, has very deep roots going back to the original conquest of the new world. Um, I think that there's another aspect of, of West Side Story that dovetails with, with, uh, with, with the Best Picture frontrunner, which is, you know, the, the, the role of toxic masculinity in all of those, uh, uh, conflicts and, and invites. And, and I think that the power of the dog starring Benedict Cumberbatch um, uh, is, uh, is, is really a, a movie about um, toxic masculinity um, and, uh, and also um, uh, the, the way- Homophobia. Homophobia and, and the way those uh, play together. So I know Jesse that you had, um, you were not crazy about the power of the dog. Want to tell us a little bit about the movie and, and also how you felt about it? I- <laughs> I, I clearly just just didn't get it. Um, I mean, I get the storyline. Um, let's let's catch our uh, listeners up on the storyline just to start out. Yeah, sure. Um, so the the power of the dog stars Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, it stars uh, Jesse Pell Pell. Uh, Plemons, is that how you pronounce his name? Landry, yeah. Landry from Friday Night Lights. This time is uh, Christian Dunst. Uh, and, and the movie itself takes place um, in Montana uh, in the 20s. And it's about uh, brothers, Phil and George, who, who own a ranch. Um, George ends up marrying Rose. Rose uh, is an alcoholic. Um, by Kirsten Dunst, right? And, yeah. and Rose um, also, you know, has has a son played by Cody uh, Smith McPhee of the uh, more recent X Men films, um, and uh, uh, he uh, is a, a feminine. And um, uh, there are some suggestions that he is queer, but um, closeted because in 1920s Montana, you cannot be openly gay. And yet the ranchers specifically um, Benedict Cumberbatch's, Cumberbatch's um, Phil really makes fun of him, gives him a hard time. Um, he gives Kirsten Dunst's character Rose a hard time. Um, there are some scenes where he is in a uh, pond, naked, swimming, uh, likely it looks like a masturbating and having a, 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 um, a, uh, personal sexual episode himself. Uh, and, uh, Cody Smith McPhee's character sees him, uh, Phil gets upset. It looks like they end up having uh, an intimate moment that the two of them, when it becomes clear to Cody Smith McPhee that Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, may have been intimate as well with um, a, a character that he keeps referencing 
um, who was really responsible for for teaching all of them how uh, how to become ranchers. Bronco Henry, uh, right? This guy who they mentioned the whole time when Benedict Cumberbatch was a, a younger man, and it's unclear if it was an adult and a teenager relationship. Uh, but he talked about how the, in order to stay warm on the mountain, they cuddled and kept close, uh, being naked, um, reminiscent of some of the Brokeback Mountain uh, storyline in which uh, like that uh, being naked and being close in terms of survival really led to them realizing some of their sexual desires. Uh, but Phil really had to suppress those. And uh, as a clearly what it seemed like a closeted gay man be- became homophobic and, and played out uh, that with homophobia because he couldn't uh, express his, his uh, true sexual self. And in the end, um, he is poisoned <laughs> and dies. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, it, you, it sounds like you understood it. So uh, I, I, I understood it. I, I don't know. I, I thought um, it was a real slow movie. I never quite got where it was going. I think it ended abruptly. Um, like it was like okay, a big reveal that he was poisoned and by uh Kirsten Dunst's son and died. Um, I guess I was hoping for more uh, as this sort of like groundbreaking. I was told that it was Benedict Cumberbatch's best role ever. I'm more of a fan of Sherlock Holmes and more of a fan of Doctor Strange, uh, <laughs> than, than I am of this yeah. guy. Okay, so here's 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 my take on the on the buzz about Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, you know, first of all, like you know, every uh, Oscar best asset, best actor Oscar performance has to have like that. You know, one sort of like you know volatile scenery chewing scene, uh, and he he gets that um, uh, when he's um, you know uh, confronting his uh, his brother um, about uh, uh, who he thinks his brother is sort of betraying uh, the ranch and betraying their relationship and betraying the memory of Bronco Henry. He's got that scene. But I think what's also, um, I think, uh, about people's reaction to his performance here um, is a couple of things. The first is it's it plays against type for him. Um, he doesn't usually play this kind of character, um, this, you know, sort of like macho, you know, sort of character. Um, and, uh, and it's like a macho character that's a veneer over something that's like really broken um, inside. He's hiding a lot of, he's, he's masking a lot of pain and a lot of inner conflict. Um, and I think he actually plays that really well. He also, you know, learned how to play the banjo for this. He, there's a lot of method acting stuff that he apparently did for this role. Um, I, I thought his performance was very effective. Um, personally. Um, I also thought Kirsten Dunst put in a great performance too. Um, Jesse Plemons was a surprise that he uh, actually got nominated for uh, supporting actor here. Um, although, you know, not necessarily an unwelcome one. He just had a very understated role uh, in, in the whole story. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, so I, I personally think that, uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is an actor you know, that is, you know, uh, among the best of, of his generation. If he's not going to win for this, he's going to win uh, at some point in the night. Or Doctor Strange or the Multiverse of Madness. Sure, sure. Why not? Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, but I, I thought that he put in a, a great performance. I think the whole movie, you know, was somewhat understated. Like you said, you know. That, that's what it is for me. It. That's what it is for me, Mike. I think it was understated. I expected that, that this had so much buzz that the 
that the right. actors would uh, show their performances with soliloquies, right? With monologues, right. with strong right. dialogue. There wasn't much to the script. I actually thought yeah. the script was probably one of the poorest parts of the movie. See, but I, I mean, I think that it was, you know, intentionally bare, right? This is, th these are people who um, pride themselves on not being, you know, men of words. And in fact, Benedict Cumberbatch's character uh, in it um, is a, uh, you know, studied classics at Princeton, right? Is somebody who's worldly and knowledgeable, but has hidden that about himself um, because he feels like that will um, uh, conflict with the image of Montana cowboy that he feels like he needs to project out into the world um, in part because that's what he saw in the man that he idolized and of course had, you know, romantic feelings for this uh, uh, Bronco Henry. I, I also felt, you know, so, so it was a movie, I think, about um, how, you know, um, uh, bottling up your identity, feeling like you have to hide your true identity, your true self um, can manifest in, um, in, in toxic or even violent ways um, that, that, you know, that, that when you do that, you are sort of do comeuppance. And, and that's, I think, what happened um, at the, you know, at the end of the movie, the, um, uh, uh, the, the younger uh, character whose, whose uh, character's name uh, now escapes me. Um, uh, Hold on one second. I'm going to pull it up. Uh, Peter. Uh, Cody Smith McPhee. There we go. As uh, the Peter. actor, uh, Peter. Um, you know, uh, I, that was a twist that I didn't see coming um, at the end, but I, you know, I found it really powerful. I didn't, it was abrupt, of course. Um, uh, and, and, and I wasn't sure if he was playing a long con on, uh, on Benedict Cumberbatch's character. I think it, I think that um, that uh, Jane Campion, the director, um, you know, has sort of left that to the to the viewers' analysis. Um, it, you know, is not is not clear about it, um, but uh, uh, but but it's possible that he was planning it from the beginning. Once he realized um, Benedict Cumberbatch's character's secret, he knew how he could exploit it. Um, and so he, once that clicked for him, he knew how he's going to get comeuppance for the way Benedict Cumberbatch had treated his mother, who really wasn't an alcoholic until he made her into an alcoholic uh, for his because of his abusive behavior. Um, you know, so I, I thought that uh, you know Jane Campion's uh, uh, filmmaking here was was really powerful. It was understated. Um, it was you're right. It was not a fast moving movie. Um, but I've been I've been in the like Montana world for a little while now. I've been uh, a, a fan of uh, uh, Yellowstone on, uh, on on Paramount Plus um, uh, with Kevin Costner, which is set in Montana. The uh, 1883, which is a prequel series. I, I really like what uh, what what filmmakers are doing now to kind of use the tropes of the Western um, uh, and and deconstruct them in ways to 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 uh, bring up uh, new kind of questions, new themes, new issues, or to raise up themes that were always present, you know, within those movies before, right? So there is, you know, the, the sort of like macho cowboy uh, motif of, of Westerns um, that is, you know, that that is like the character study in this movie is like what's underneath that macho veneer is sometimes um, grief um, and sometimes 
um, you, the, the, uh, the, the inability to be who you truly are has to, you know, you feel like you have to put on that armor um, in order to, to be someone else. So I thought that that was really uh, affecting for, for me. Um, and, I, and I felt like there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, Jewish themes in it too. You know, first of all, like the, the way in which um, uh, uh, oppressors um, uh, so often uh, have a history of oppression themselves uh, or repression um, that, uh, you know, that that we get that in in the Torah, right? You know, uh, know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's as if the Torah is saying that because you uh, had an experience of oppression, you actually are at more of a risk to be oppressors yourselves. So you have to tap into that um, vulnerability to recognize that you should have empathy for uh, people who are vulnerable themselves um, and not um, and, and not try to dominate them. Right. And that's what's playing out in this in this in this movie. Yeah. Uh, OK. <laughs> didn't do it um, for you. It, it just didn't do it Jane for Campion, I, by I, the I, way, if I if, if, if uh, Jane Campion wins best director for this, she'll only be the second woman. Or sorry, only the third woman um, to ever win. Uh, uh, best director at the Oscars. Listen, that is worth celebrating. Um, I just wish that, that there was more of a story. You know, this was adapted from a, a, a book uh, that I, I think the book was written in the 60s. Uh, yeah. it, it, it's quite an old story. Uh, so with, a, with a, a story, you would hope that the adapted screenplay would do more with it. Um, and maybe you're right. Maybe it focused on... Um, the the characters uh developing the story without words without dialogue i think the well, story the joy, jumped a lot um, i'm gonna say something i'm gonna say something really pretentious here um which you know tracks um but uh uh you know in, in, in a way silence was a character in the movie um and, and i think that that was purposeful right uh, because you know here is the a, a lead character um that has uh, that has told himself that he has to quiet uh, an essential part of himself and what that does to a person. Yeah, I, I think that that's fair. I, th I think that that's right. Um, I just think that that made the story really slow. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, really difficult for me to to catch on to it again. But I, I'm not the I'm not the right person uh, for for the Oscars. Right. I love watching the Oscars, but there's talk. Right. I remember when Black Panther was nominated for Best Picture and it was like it was like Black Panther and it was like Heath Ledger in the Dark Knight. Right. It was uh, the Return of the King, the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was like, finally, these these um, sci fi and fantasy and superhero movies are, are breaking through. Uh, I, I think you you have Martin Scorsese criticizing superhero films as them all being the same and fit into these boxes and being the only movies that people are interested in seeing in theaters anymore, which we sort of talked about, right? Half, if not more than half uh, of, of the Best Picture nominees were released on streaming services. Uh, and, right, you look at what the top uh, most successful films are, um, you, you have in 2021 in theatrical runs, you have Spider-Man No Way Home. We have the Batman, which we haven't talked about yet, which had a monster opening weekend. Uh, 
right? The, those aren't the, the the academy has this disillusion towards uh, popcorn films, uh, and and maybe we need to be celebrating Critics Choice Award. Maybe we need to celebrate in different categories instead of just or different award shows instead of just the Oscars. Well, right. I mean, I think that the Academy's uh, predisposition is, you know, film as an art form. Um, And there is a, you know, a a way in which, uh, you know, people in that world, um, you know, denigrate popular art um, and uh, and, and celebrate, you know, uh, uh, high art. Um, uh, And uh, and I think that that's a that's a obviously a debatable premise. You know, why is um, you know, why is Spider-Man No Way Home, which I haven't seen, but I can imagine is good because I love Spider-Man um, and I'm looking forward to seeing it when it's out on streaming. Um, you know, why is Spider-Man No Way Home a worse picture than The Power of the Dog? Um, you know, these are a matter of, of taste, of course, right? You know, so like on what merit, on what standard do we decide that? And, and there is a sort of snootiness um, to the to the Oscars, both, you know, both historically and presently um, that, you um, uh, that that I think is is uh, wor- worthy of criticism for sure. Um, that said, you know I um, you know listen, I, like I said, I, I didn't I didn't see Spider Man No Way Home, um, and I haven't seen the Batman yet. Um, but let's say you know let's take another you know uh, big uh, superhero movie of of the last year, you know um, the Eternals or or uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings or something like that. I mean, I, you know, I, those are fine movies. I didn't love the Eternals, but I liked Shang-Chi fine. Um, it was a good movie, but it, but it, I, I, the power of the dog is the kind of movie that, um, that, that like sticks to your ribs or at least st- stuck to mine. Like I'm gonna, I, I, you know, I've been, I was thinking about the power of the dog for days after I saw it. I was um, too, but for many different reasons. And and uh, a lot of times, and a lot of times, I find that you know that the popcorn movies do end up being kind of like junk food, right? That they, you know, they, they taste good when you're watching it, but don't really kind of stay with you in in the same way. Um, you know, the, I can definitely think of ex- exceptions to that rule. Right. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure that there are exceptions because they're objectively great movies uh, by artistic standards or just because I loved them. Right. So, yeah, I, I also think um, we rewatch I rewatched for like the 30th time and my wife for like the first time, all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies during the pandemic. Uh, and partially because yeah, yeah. I was showing my, my kids the, these movies and. Uh, she asked, well, uh, how many of these movies do I need to watch in order to understand Avengers Endgame? And I was like, you know, 22. Uh, and so we went back and watched all of them. And that's part of it. But right? I think, uh, Mar- right, that you have a different investment. People could enjoy Avengers Endgame without seeing any of the movies. But the, this, there's a different level of being a stakeholder. Uh, one of Marvel's uh, greatest challenges going forward is actually, um, you know, with the Disney Plus series, is how do you make people watch them without uh, feeling like they have to watch a million other movies in order to get them, which is a challenge where if the power of the dog, if King Richard, if Coda, if, if these are standalone stories, then they work on their own for two hours, two and a half hours, uh, and you don't need any of that other uh, uh, pre-work yeah, that's that's right. You know, listen. I think that there is um, something 
very Jewish about that too, right? Can you, can you appreciate the book of Exodus on its own? Yes. Is it richer if you also have um, a, a lot of exposure to an experience with other Jewish texts, right? Of the other texts of the Tanakh, the rabbinic literature, right? Yeah, it's, it's much richer that way. So in, in a way, the MCU um, is doing something, you know, uh, uh, totally unique in, in the history of, of film. It's something, you know, an extraordinary accomplishment and, and worth celebrating. Um, you, and I, by the way, I think that Avengers Endgame was snubbed uh, by the Academy. The, the, you know, on, on what planet should it not have been considered for best picture that year? Um, it's, it's crazy that it wasn't. Um, but, um, uh, you know, not the, if, if for no other reason than because it was the culminating, uh, a very successful culminating product of a, you know, a, a, a project that was over a decade in the making uh, and 20 movies long, right? So like, that, that's really amazing what they did. But I think that you're right. I think that there is something um, meaningful about like a single piece of art being able to stand on its own. Um, and yes, Avengers Endgame can, um, but I wonder if, you know, I, I can't now go back in time and, and not have seen the other Marvel cinematic movies before Avengers Endgame to tell you if I, you know, appreciated it on its own merits or not. Um, it was fine on its own merits, but it was definitely more meaningful because it was the culminating project. Whereas you get a movie like Power of the Dog, Nightmare Alley, whatever, right? These are, these are single solitary sure. pieces of art. Um, uh, you know, th there are examples of sequels, you know, being, um, you know, kind of Oscar worthy movies, you know, Return of the King, Lord of the Rings uh, uh, being being one of them. Um, although that was maybe a unique example uh, as well. Um, but I think that that is what the what what the Oscars are predisposed toward is, you know, what, what's a piece of art that can really stand on its own. Um, and, you know, in many ways, some of those popcorn films um, don't quite stand on their own in the same way. I, I think that's fair. Um, you know, the Oscars have been criticized in, in the past, right? Right. There was a hashtag a number of years ago, hashtag Oscar so white. Right. Um, and uh, it sort of begs the question, do the, does the Academy really represent the interest of um, the people? um uh, of the viewers uh and and right now um not that this means that a movie is good or not right venom 2 did great in, in in the theaters like from a box office perspective and it was pure trash it was like <laughs> really arguably one of the worst movies i've seen in the past Ooh, five years i'm gonna, I'm gonna I, fight you on venom 2 I, I uh i i was fooled into watching it because of the 90 second post credit scene uh, <laughs> Uh, that, that that's that's why I saw it, and uh, oh, I'm gonna fight uh, you on Venom too. But all, all, all that being said, um, uh, it, it's those popcorn movies, right? It's those superhero films that are keeping movie theaters in business right now, uh, and maybe they shouldn't be, right? Maybe it's a change in structure of the the movie going experience. I also wonder if we've talked about this before, if the cinematography of the Power of the Dog, if I would have liked more if I saw it in theaters than on Netflix or, or something like that. I think if movies are are you know viewed on streaming services, then do they have to be adapted? for that viewing experience than the big screen, right? Would I have liked Dune if I saw it on the big screen more, uh, maybe to an extent? Uh, and, and I think we have to keep that in mind going forward.
Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's an element of this too, Jesse, which is when I was a senior in rabbinical school, um, we had our senior seminar with uh, Rabbi Ed Feinstein, who's uh, at Valley Beth Shalom in in, uh, Los Angeles and is about to retire, uh, one of the great pulpit rabbis of our generation. Um, And and he, in my opinion, at least, uh, and he once said to us, um, you know, there are really two Judaisms. Uh, There is, you know, um, uh, like academic Judaism, right? There's sort of like highbrow Judaism, which is the Judaism that rabbis uh, are trained in. Um, And then there is, um, uh, then there's like the Judaism of the masses, right? So like, you know, in, in, in rabbinic Judaism, uh, Passover, uh, Yom Kippur, like these are the most significant Jewish holidays for, for, uh, the rest of the Jewish world. Hanukkah is the most significant Jewish holiday, right? You know, for, for, uh, for, for rabbinic, for, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, ivory church, ivory tower, uh, uh, Jews, you know, like Shabbat is the most important Jewish practice, right. For, uh, for, for Jews out there in the world, I don't know, tzedakah, tikkun olam, uh, um, uh, remembering the Holocaust. Like those are the most essential Jewish practices and Jewish values, you know? And so what, what's so is power of the dog Shavuot and Avengers Endgame is Hanukkah or Purim. that's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I'd call power of the dog Shmini <laughs> Aseret. All right. Well, uh, Jane Campion, come come at Jesse on on that. Uh, first, <laughs> research Shmini Aseret, and then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you know what I'll say about Shmini Aseret? I mean, I, you know, I think, and I, I said this when I was watching Power of the Dog, because um, I think that there was a you know way in which it felt right for this time. I, I said I turned to Adira when I was watching when we were watching. I said like is everything right now about grief, right? And, I, and you know, I think that that was really present for me in The Power of the Dog is like, this is a movie about how we navigate and process grief or don't, right? And we're dealing with that as a society too. And we have this collective grief and trauma of the past uh, couple of years. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways over the past, like two decades has been just yeah. trauma, mounting on trauma. And, and I don't think that we've done a really good job of, of, of dealing with it or processing it well. Um, and it's manifested in really uh, volatile and hostile, uh, toxic behaviors, um, you know, interpersonally and, and collectively, uh, you know, and, and I think that that part of that is that we really haven't, we, you know, we talked about this when we talked about, uh, you know, talk about a popcorn thing, when we talked about WandaVision, which was really a show about grief too. We talked about how this was, you know, really a, a, an appropriate show for the moment um, about how, you know, grief can can channel into um, uh, rage and delusion. Um, you know, that was, I think, you know, one of the themes that was present in Power of the Dog as well. It, it feels very relevant to, to right now. Um, yeah, I think that's a longer conversation about when we're dealing with so much grief and and, and heartache, um, what, what do we want and what are we looking for from, from pop culture? Are we looking for a way to process that? Or are we looking for a way just to be happy? My grandfather, of blessed memory used to say that the only thing he liked to watch was Shirley Temple, right? Shirley Temple never made him cry, always made him smile. Um, and maybe that's my, 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 not, not to say that there is not some intense stuff, right? Uh, I, I, I cried during the snap in Avengers Infinity War, uh, but um, 
but but there is something about cinema that is meant to, I think, uh, take us to another time and place uh, and not feel real. Uh, it, it's meant to to help us disconnect with the challenges of the world. Um, yeah, you know, so it's really interesting. I mean, I think that that's kind of also what's present in the in the you know uh, debate over the relevance of the Academy Awards. I mean, they they tend to see movies not as an as as a an art form of escapism, but an art form of engagement, you know, with with the real world, right? Um, and I think that that's a debatable premise, right? Like, what are movies supposed to be? Are they supposed to be a way you just like go and forget about your troubles for two hours? Um, or are they a way to help you think about your troubles in a different way, um, or both? Um, and I think that there's definitely room for both, but definitely the, the Academy Awards prioritizes one over the other. Absolutely. Well, let us know what you think uh, of our Best Picture nominees. Uh, and uh, if you are in, in the same boat as me and think Coda should, should take home Best Picture, um, or if you are like Mike and think it's going to be the power of the dog, uh, feel free to add us on, on, on Twitter. Uh, feel free to smash that subscribe button, rate and review us here at Pop Torah. And until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Bronco Henry. <laughs> take care, everyone.